Here we go. We're in Acts chapter 13. And Paul is addressing synagogue in Pisidian Antioch. I took the maps off my PowerPoint because nobody could see what it said on them anyhow. But uh, I think by now, you can, a lot of people have maps in the back of their Bibles or whatever. Let's begin with prayer. Thank you, Lord, for the fellowship of the saints and for the truth of the gospel that you've given to us. May we understand what you've said and what we need, what we need to learn about your providence as you fulfilled your purposes and acts and how the gospel was preached to the Jewish people as Paul did so. And help us learn, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So today, we're in Acts 13, 21, 22. One of the things you'll notice about Paul's sermon, and this was pretty common, but particularly, obviously, when he would go into a synagogue, Paul started with some things that they had in common, shared beliefs and ideas and premises. And one of those shared premises was that God had acted in history to turn the Jews into a people by appearing to Abraham and Moses and David, various patriarchs, to create the people of Israel. And the other premises included promises. God had given promises in the Old Testament. And the primary claim that you'll find in the sermons in the book of Acts is that God kept his promise to send a savior and that there was an unexpected way as far as the Jews were concerned that the promise was fulfilled. This was the main sticking point of their battles. And that was this, that... um, they certainly would believe that God was going to raise up a king like to sit on the throne of David. But the idea that God was going to send uh, a suffering servant who would be rejected by his own people and suffer and die and then be raised on the third day, that one they didn't, they didn't see. That, that was the problem. And both things are true. But they happen in a way that would have been unexpected to them, that the suffering and dying and being raised on the third day and then ascending into heaven, all of which is in the Old Testament prophecies, happened first. And the coming back and establishing the throne of David happens later. Now, that part of it, Eric's been covering in his Sunday school as he's gone through Revelation. He's talking about Bible prophecy. So here we are in the middle of Paul's sermon, Pisidian Antioch. And notice it said, And they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And after he had removed removed him, he raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he also testified and said, I have found David, this son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. And so he's quoting. Now, notice, I think it was the last time I taught Sunday school, which was a few weeks ago, I went through this entire sermon of Paul's and found 20, I think I found another one after I read this here, 22 actions of God in one sermon. God did this, God did this, God did this, God did that. So Paul's sermon is dynamic in the sense that he's describing to them what God did. But every once in a while he mentions what they did and it wasn't necessarily good. In fact, here we see another example. Paul, who normally is saying, here's what God did, when he mentions what they did, It wasn't good. 
they asked for a king. Now, if you read that, the narrative in the Old Testament, they were doing so out of their discontent with God ruling over them. And God said, they've rejected me. And it wasn't that God wasn't going to raise up a king, but because they were demanding that he do it their way, as a judgment, he just gives them Saul. Here's what your king's going to do. Remember that? Here's what your king is. It's not going to be good. No, we want a king. Be careful what you want. Uh, sometimes it's not good. We need to be wise about what we want. I would say that to America right now. Be careful what you want. People are saying, we want socialism. We want socialism. It's never worked. We don't care. We still want it. It'll destroy everybody. People will die. We don't care. We still want it. It's bad when you reject God because then you don't think right. Um, So we have Saul. Now, I wanted to... Read. In fact, if you want to turn to this, so it's a fairly long section, just four or five verses. Luke 23, 14 to 18. Throughout this series on Acts, I'm emphasizing the narrative unity of Luke Acts. When you read those two books, they should be read as a two-volume work by the same author, Luke. Luke 23, 14 to 18. And uh, that was when they rejected their own Messiah and asked for Barabbas. Okay? So this illustrates the thing. They asked for a king. I think there's an echo back to Luke when they asked for Barabbas. And Luke twenty three fourteen, And he said to them, You brought this man to me as one who incites the people to rebellion. And behold, having examined him before you, I have found no guilt in this man regarding the charges which you make against him. Verse 15. No, nor has Herod, for he sent him back to us. And behold, nothing deserving death has been done by him. Verse 16. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. Verse 17. Now he was obligated to release to them at the feast one prisoner. Verse 18. But they cried out all together, saying, Away with this man and release for us Barabbas. We don't want Jesus. We want Barabbas. And so here, Paul in Acts 13 is saying, they asked for a king, so God gave them Saul. And it's pretty clear that Jesus wasn't really guilty of inciting rebellion against Rome. He came and predicted that he'd be rejected and that he would die for sins. He was sinless. He wasn't a rabble rouser. He wasn't a, a rebel. He wasn't trying to incite insurrection and create a Jewish kingdom right then. He came to die for sins. I've got two new resources in Acts, by the way. So I'm excited. Now I've got even more commentaries. The only problem is it takes me even longer to study, but I don't mind. So I, f- I found a great one by a guy named Sh- Shnabel. <laughs> Shinabel, and he said this, quote, as God acted despite the grumbling and the trespasses of the Israelites during this period, so God carried his purpose connected with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus despite the lack of understanding and the opposition of the Jewish leaders who asked Pilate for Jesus' execution. So he saw the same thing that, that I had seen, that there's an echo of this rejection and asking for something that really wasn't God's purpose. And so 
Here he raised up David. David is the one to whom the promise was given. And uh, Eric, if, could you go look at, I think, 2 Samuel 7 and find the promise concerning David? I'm sure you're familiar with that. <clears throat> so the true son of David came, but he was rejected by the people who claimed they wanted a king. I always go to Second Samuel seven fourteen, and uh, that's where the Davidic promise. Uh, it begins before that, but I'll just start there. This is what God promises to David. It says, Second um, Samuel seven fourteen, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Now, when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. So right there, I'm sorry, I'll just stop. Go ahead and explain that. You'll know that there, it's more than just the Messiah. There's going to be sons that are intervening prior to Messiah. So Solomon, for example, and other Davidic kings are going to be just mere men who do fall into a There's a principle there called the many and the one. Exactly, the one and the many. So there's this corporate solidarity in David. You have many earthly kings who are merely human, but there's going to eventually be one who is going to be the God-man. And he's going to establish this. Now, what's interesting is, keep reading, he says, but my steadfast love will not depart from him. So God's mercy and his cassette won't depart from David. He says, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. Verse 16, it says, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Yeah, so it was about David. And then later, remember in that same uh, narrative, there was this thou was spoken to thy servant concerning the distant future? Yes, yes. He, um, and this is in verse 27. It says, For you, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, I have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord, your God, I mean, you are God, and your words are true, and what you have promised, this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant, so that it may continue before you. For you, O Lord, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. So David is just recounting um, that, in fact, this is true. This will happen forever. This will happen. And then you're right, there's a passage in that section where he ends up saying, this is Torah, for all mankind, instruction. Yeah. And so literally the Davidic promise, David claims that this is written instruction for every person. If yeah. people will believe that promise, they'll understand yeah. what God the, mo- the reason, oh, I, I just absolutely love to teach the Bible. It, it's so fantastic. The more you study the Bible, the more carefully you study it, and the more thoroughly you study it, you'll have confidence that this is inspired by the Holy Spirit and it's supernatural because nobody could have figured it all out. What really happened had to have been a work of God. For one thing, the Bible came from the Jews. And how often does a people write uh, their own history and the history tells how bad they are? Right? I'm sorry, you know what, it's verse 19 up above... 2 Samuel seven nineteen. he says, Yet this is a small thing, David says, in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And just for as you said, for future, the future. some other translation. And then right after that, he says, This is instruction for mankind. Literally, this is Torah. Yeah. So that's for all people. That's verse 19. But it comes through the Jews. So they were so concerned that everything that was written was done so completely accurately they wrote exactly what happened, even if it made them look bad. Okay? They weren't there to write uh, a flowery, rose-colored history about how great we are. They were there to tell cold, sober truth, as we'll see later in Acts. And so 
That's exactly what happened. They did ask for Saul. It wasn't good. They, did, they were sent prophets who rebuked them, but they went, wanted to listen to the false prophets. But yet God did keep his promise and bring forth the Davidic Messiah through the line of David, as the New Testament claims. And so Paul is going into a synagogue and saying, this is exactly what happened, and here's what God did. He kept his promises. David and the son of David are thematic in Luke Acts. The term David is found 13 times in Luke, just in Luke. David is mentioned 13 times. Look at Luke 132, Luke 132. This is how brilliantly Luke writes to, to give previews of what is going to be spoken about all through the two volumes. It says in Luke 132, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. The Lord will give him the throne of his father, David. So Messiah will be the son of David. And then in Luke 20, let's fast forward in a little bit in Luke. I'll read it to you, Luke 20, 41 to 43. Then he said to them, how is it that they say the Christ is David's son? So Luke 132 He's going to be the one who has the throne of David. But then Jesus himself, in Luke 20, said, how is it they say that Christ is David's son? Verse 44, Luke 20, 44, For David himself said in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This is so significant. Psalm 110 is cited more often in the New Testament than any other Old Testament passage. How can the one who sits on the throne of David and is fulfilling the promise given to the uh, Israel in the Old Testament that there will be a king on the throne of David, but yet be rejected and crucified? And when Paul was preaching in Acts 13, Jesus isn't there. He is, in earlier in Acts, he said it in heaven. Psalm 110 explains how that's true. He is exalted to the highest place of authority and glory in heaven. And right now he rules. That was the claim. And Jesus said that in, in Luke 20, 42 and 43. Jesus cites Psalm 110 and applies it to his own future Glorification. Is that correct? We need to know this because there are so many false groups out there with all kinds of other ideas. And now with the internet, every false idea goes everywhere all the time. And uh, I got to decide in my inbox which ones I want to debate at the moment because they're all out there. And, and, uh, we need to really know the Bible because it's a battle to keep the church on the straight and narrow. Let's just say it that way. Acts 13, 23-25, still Paul preaching in the synagogue. Quote, from the descendants of this man, according to promise, I have that highlighted in red because promise is thematic. God has brought to Israel a savior Jesus. After John had proclaimed before his coming a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel, and while John was completing his course, he kept saying, talking about John the Baptist here, by the way, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he. But behold, one is coming after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. I'm less, says John the Baptist, than a common servant. I'm not even worthy to be his servant. He's so much greater than I am. And yet, but yet, John the Baptist was a great prophet. 
and who was the one who fulfilled the promise that Elijah would come in Malachi. Is that correct? And so this is pretty amazing how God keeps his promises. Notice that repentance was for all the people of Israel. And so John preaching repentance was very, very important because they were not in the condition they needed to be in to to be face-to-face with the Messiah. They needed him to do a work of grace. They needed to change. So they would have agreed as Jews in the synagogue in the first century that there was a promise of a Davidic Messiah, they would have all agreed. The battle, the dispute, was whether Jesus was the one. And Luke is being very careful to give much evidence that he really was. That he literally appeared to people. And that all these things really happened. And it's interesting that if you read Acts, when all this is going on, and these messages are preached by Peter and Paul and others, Stephen, there were people still alive on the scene of history when all these things happened. And as some people have said, there were people that had means, motives, and opportunity to refute what was saying. The people there could have said, well, wait a second. This Jesus is dead. Here's his tomb. There's a body in it. Nobody claimed that there was a body in the tomb. In fact, everybody that mentioned it agreed that the tomb was empty. The soldiers were, this is Luke, I'm um, giving a little from Matthew, but they were lying because they, they knew he was raised, but they were willing to take money rather than repent and believe in him. And so they couldn't refute the claims. And what happens when people are wrong and they're confronted with their wrongness and they have no ability to use logic and evidence to refute the claims, what happens to those people if they don't want to change? They become irate and angry. Like today. They throw things. They burn things. They shout. They create riots. Because a rational argument is already gone. They don't have one. And they just get angry. And so the irony that's going on here in Acts is that Paul had reacted that way himself. Right? Because Stephen's speech was magnificent. And Paul heard it. Paul had heard the same arguments, or similar ones, from Stephen. And what did he do? He held the garments while they stoned him. But Jesus had a different idea as he confronted the angry, rebellious Saul of Tarsus who said, and Jesus said to him, why, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Persecute the church, you persecute Jesus. And so through a sovereign confrontation with Christ, the resurrected Christ, Saul was converted because Paul And when he's preaching, he's using the very same kind of arguments that Stephen did. How many of you know that God converts sinners? (laughs) Probably you do or you wouldn't be here in church today. And uh, sometimes the people that are hostile turn out to be the ones God converts. That was me. I was hostile. God converted me. I became face to face with the truth. When I knew it was true, 
The only option was to stay the way I was and go to hell or believe the truth and have my sins forgiven. What are we going to do? People don't really believe there's a hell until they're convicted by the Spirit of God through the gospel. And then I knew there was a hell in a nanosecond. I used to, I've said this in the, over the years past, hell is the most talked about place that people assume doesn't exist. They tell each other to go there, but they don't believe there's anywhere to actually go. Uh, but once you know that it's real and that you are the enemy of God, repentance is called for. Now, repentance here, notice the term repentance, baptism of repentance. It wasn't just John the Baptist. So I did a little run of the word for repent, and repentance in the New Testament. Greek is metanoia. And uh, I found it interesting how many times the word repent, repentance is used in Luke Acts. And it is a lot. I have two pages just from Luke Acts of repentance. Do you remember the how famous it was? Some of us are older. Remember Bob Schuler, Robert Schuler in the Crystal Cathedral? And he said the worst thing he could ever tell somebody is that they're lost and going to hell. That he would never preach such a thing to anybody. You can't do that. So people are still thinking that way in the secret movement. Luke, let me just give you a few examples. Luke 13, 3 and 5. I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Referencing people who were notorious sinners. Luke 15, 10. The same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Do you believe that? I believe it. Why do we preach repentance for forgiveness of sins? Because there's joy in heaven. Yes, Brother Eric. You know, I, I, this is just a great subject, repentance. Um, you know, I notice up there, the, you know, he proclaimed repentance to all the people of Israel, not just some of them. Mm-hmm. But all of them. And that applies to us. But it's, you know, that's not a very... Schuler was uh, a good salesman. You know, he, he would rather appeal to people's pride. And a lot of, probably a lot of bad teaching today, a lot of the churches and, and everything else, uh, appealing to pride. In other words, you have to swallow your pride to realize that you're a depraved sinner and can do nothing on your well, own. Well, they, they market tested that message and found out they wouldn't sell. You know they do market surveys of everything? They tried repentance and it didn't show up as something people wanted to hear. Yes? Bob, I'm just wondering if you could either make copies of those papers or put it on the GGF website. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's verses on repent and repentance in Luke Acts. All right, I'll, I'll send them to Christine. We can put them on the website. Look, but the reason I'm saying is that it shows up in all of these messages. And Jesus actually commanded that repentance for forgiveness of sin be preached. So and somebody says, well, why do you preach that? Well, if Jesus told me to, I think that's a pretty good idea, don't you? Remember, uh, some of you probably do remember this Les Feldig went around claiming the Gospels aren't for the church and most of Acts isn't for the church and repentance isn't for the church and that there's two different Gospels, one that was Paul's and the other one was uh, uh, just for the Jews. I wrote an article about it. And... um, 
But here you have Paul preaching repentance, but I suppose you could say he was, if you were Feldig, well, he was preaching to Jews, so it was okay. But see, the message is for all. And, and I still get emails from people saying, well, don't you know the Gospels aren't for the church? And I, uh, for Luann over here, I say, the Gospels were written by the church, for the church. What are you talking about? Yes, Luann. And I know you've covered this before, so I apologize for the question. But um, when they were talking, uh, Priscilla and Achilla were talking, and they were asking the people, were you um, baptized into John's baptism? And they answered yes, because they didn't know about the Holy Spirit and whatever. Mm-hmm. But then they went and taught them more. Yeah. About, can you explain that, the, what they were actually referring to when they were went and taught more? Well, they evidently had come to faith uh, to some degree by having heard John the Baptist. Do you, I have, Eric, do you want to comment on that? And so they needed to realize they needed the Holy Spirit. Amen. And the, the idea of baptism, they were baptized. They asked, what baptism were you baptized with? Was it John? or Well, they admitted it was with John, but baptism is primarily about identity. It's who you're with. So the necessity of being baptized into Christ is the idea that now I'm with him. And so that's the idea. So Jesus is baptized not to, he doesn't need the remission of sin. So the question is, well, why was Jesus baptized? Well, because he identifies with the people of God. So and the purposes of God and the purposes of God. So when you and I are baptized with him, if you read Romans six, the idea is that we're with him. We're dead to the old and we're alive to the new. And by the way, the repentance, Bob is exactly right. This is a concept that is tied directly to faith. Um, what happened with Les Feldick is he tried to make a divide between repentance and faith. Faith was for the church. Repentance was for Israel. The problem with that is there's a lot of passages that show them together. For example, Mark 1.15, Jesus commands every person to repent and to believe the gospel. So repentance, literally the term Bob just cited it, metanea is the noun, metanoeo is the verb. Meta, you've heard of metaphysics? Okay, meta means after, and noeo is a thought. It's an afterthought. So literally it's a change of mind. So when someone repents, they're changing their mind from serving idols and turning to God on his terms. Well, what are God's terms? Faith, faith alone in Christ. So if you have faith in Christ, it's because you've repented. And if you repent, it's unto faith in Christ. Yeah. So that you can't have one without It's God. an artificial thing to divide the two up. Exactly. And then the other thing that people should know, in technical theology, they talk about ordo salutis. I don't know if you've heard that term. It's a Latin term. It means order of salvation. But any good theologian will tell you that the relationship between various things that happen at conversion is not chronological. It's logical. Okay? It all happens, boom. Other than water baptism, because that you had to go find the water, right? And have somebody do it. But the things that we talk about in this ordo salutis, faith, repentance, grace, saving grace, belief in the person of Christ, all of these different things happen at the point of conversion. Now, the uh, consequences go on for eternity and the working it out on the scene of history goes on throughout life we're growing in the grace and knowledge of God God is transforming us repent and be baptized so you go to the water right Uh, all of these things are part of conversion but uh, let me tell you why this happens because I in the 80s and 90s I spent a couple decades in the middle of debates over all of this because uh, we started teaching verse by verse through the Bible. Eventually you get to verses people don't like. And that happened primarily in Romans. A lot of people got very angry when I got into Romans back in the 80s um, because they didn't like what it said. 
And so if we're going to have the whole counsel of God, we've got to be willing to address all the issues and topics that come up and take them all seriously and try to have the best reading. We're not claiming to be omniscient, but we can know what is revealed. And so as we went through all of this, um, there's this issue about what's man's part and what's God's part that comes up. But eventually, when I kept reading and studying, then you come to monergism and synergism, which was really the battle of the Reformation. Rome teaches synergism, adding to the merits of Christ. So God has already done all he's going to do. Now you start doing this. Now Rome had a really big, long list of what you got to do. And, and the really cruel thing about Rome was even when you did everything on the list, they still said, well, you probably goofed up. We better have a purgatory. And then your relatives can keep doing it. Do, 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 do. Well, you goofed up. Go, to the, go do this, go do that. Okay, so you have this great big huge thing. That's man's part. But um, the, Luther came along and said, no, faith alone. Is that correct? And not just faith, but all of these things. Christ alone, faith alone, grace alone, scripture alone, the glory of God alone. The five solas, they're called. I think that's the sine qua non of the gospel. Without which not. As soon as you add works of any kind, you're, you're in trouble. We'll see the less Feldigs of the world decided that repentance is a work. Okay? So if repentance is a work, then that can't be part of it. Or you don't have faith. And then you can decide whatever else is man's work, besides repentance or whatever else you want to say. So he just, in order to make this seem plausible, reduce what's preached and required for salvation down to what anybody could do without any special work of grace. Eric, correct me whenever I'm wrong here. You don't have to agree with me, by the way, nor does anybody else. But I'm giving my assessment of why there was a 20-year battle in my life. Because the people were saying, no, 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 we have to do our part. We have to do our part. What are you talking about? And so somebody says, okay, but that part, that's just the Jews. Okay, they have to repent. They have to do that. All you have to do is believe. And so then repentance was defined as mental assent to facts about Jesus. Okay? And if you say, yes, in my mind, I do believe that Jesus really lived and died and the things that we say in the creeds are true, that's repentance you're saved. That's faith. Well, then what about people who did that and they're living for the devil? Well, then you have a secondary work for sanctification. And so anything having to do with sanctification is for people who already had given mental assent and now they're going to get their lives straightened out. But then... There's a problem with that, and I'm going to ask Gary, because we both read this, a very profound book about it by this David Peterson, whose commentary on Acts is so good. If you look at all the verses about sanctified in the New Testament, the vast majority of them are applied to every single person. The saints are people who are converted, who are made holy by God at their conversion. That's something they achieve by works after faith. Why don't you explain, Eric, how helpful that David uh, Peterson... I, by the way, I, you know how I got his book, I think I told Eric. When I was in seminary in the 90s, I don't, uh, that was when you actually read real books. You didn't get it on your computer. You know? 
And I was in the bookstore, and there were books they didn't want anymore. They were on clearance. So that book wasn't going to be used anymore, so I found it on clearance by Peterson. So go ahead and That's tell them about it. Figures they didn't want that book anymore, right? Well, they were talking, by that time, they were in the Bill Hybels and oh, the sure, Seeker sure. Sensitive. Yeah, Sanctification, right. they didn't care when it happened because they didn't want to talk about it. Right. Well, Bob is exactly right. When you read David Peterson's book, it's edited. It's a series that's edited by D.A. Carson. And in the book, he just lays out that 90... I forget the percentage, a very high percentage, 97% of all the terms, whether you have sanctifies, sanctified, has been sanctified, will be sanctified, however you phrase it, uh, the term has to do with what God did for us in Christ once and for all. And so the reason that's significant is sanctification is really being set apart. That's what it means. It, by the way, the term hagiazo, to be sanctified, the term hagios is the term for a saint. So a saint is sanctified. It just means set apart for God. Well, that happens once and for all at conversion. At conversion, God sets you apart in Jesus Christ. You went from the camp of the devil to Jesus' camp. You're set apart for him. So the emphasis is on what God did for us. The problem in evangelicalism that Bob and I ran into was a lot of people want to turn sanctification into a work of man. So it becomes a secondary. A secondary issue, exactly. What's interesting is David Peterson makes the case that what the Bible calls us to is better rendered transformation. So, for example, in uh, Romans 12, 2, he says, Do not be conformed to the image of this world, but be transformed yeah, good point. by the renewing of your mind. Amen. So you and I were set apart once and for all, sanctified in Christ. But now, daily, we are being transformed to think differently and to act differently. So Bob and I have been trying to get people to say, let's talk about transformation rather than sanctification as the process. Because sanctification is really something that God did for us once and for all in Christ. That's the better yeah. Well, let me give you just a real simple way to understand that. When Paul addressed the church, and he said, to the saints who were at, yeah. and he names a city, was Paul meaning this to those who have already achieved a higher level of Christian behavior? Nope. We know that's not what he meant because he was rebuking them because they hadn't. Right? What he meant was to the ones who are converted. Now, let me give you another example. Let's go back to Acts 9. Remember when Paul was converted... And this brother, Ananias, was the one who was sent to pray for him. And he wasn't really too excited about doing it. Maybe, yeah, somebody looked that up and you can read it. The story of Ananias being told to go pray for Saul of Tarsus. Eric, did you find it? See if you find the spot. But I, I think it's very interesting because Saul hadn't been a Christian long enough have done it and he was blind right so he was he was going around blind and he didn't have time to achieve a higher level of christian life right, good point. right? Yeah. go ahead and read it that's a good point uh 9 it's uh so this is ananias being commissioned to lay his hands on paul it says but ananias answered Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints, ironically to the saints set apart, in your name. Uh, but the Lord said to him, go, for he is my chosen, a chosen instrument of mine. Um, sorry, I'm losing my place here. Chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show you, for I will show him yeah. how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Yeah. And then uh, I think didn't Ananias address Saul as brother? Yeah. See if that. See if you see that in there. Yeah, you're right, Bob. Uh, Nine seventeen, Ananias saying to, to Paul or Saul, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to <laughs> he you. He calls him brother. He didn't even want to go pray for him because the guy was so evil. And, and see, once God receives somebody then we have to receive them. That's why Paul was so harsh with the, in the book of Galatians, and he confronted Peter. Because Peter, in practice, didn't want to receive who God received. Ananias didn't want anything to do with Saul, because he was one of the most... Hate, he hated Christians more than anybody. Wanted them dead. 
No, no, no. This is somebody. This is a person that's now part of us. And he went and called him Brother Saul, and he did pray for him. We need to receive everybody that God receives. Now, if we're claiming to be whom God received, we can't go to the pagan temples of worship and practice divination and fornication and, you know, Corinth. And I'll get to that later in Ephesians. Because if we refuse to live in a way that would be indicative of our calling, there's reason to think that we're not really a brother or sister after all. Yes, Lonnie. Um, I, I'm kind of confused here. You were talking about sanctification. You said we should use the term transformation rather than sanctification. Uh, okay, um, after we have been converted... I was always taught that we are continually being sanctified. So uh, um, I should use the term transformed rather than sanctification or what? what I, I'm confused. Well, there, there are cases where it's used that way. Go ahead and address that, Eric. Yeah, there, there are times in the New Testament where sanctification is something that we're in process of, but it's the small minority report of the verses. So all we're saying is when you look at the biblical data, sanctification is something that's been done once and for all. What's happened is evangelicalism, especially the Reformed tradition, has distorted that, especially Calvin. Here's how it works. Calvin said you begin with Christ, and then under the third use of the law, you are sanctified by going back to the law. So the Reformed tradition started to distort what sanctification really was. Sanctification ended up being an act of man, whereby you become progressively better and better and more like Christ. Now, we're not saying that there isn't a process where we're being more made into the image of Christ. That is. But the emphasis in the New Testament in sanctification, 97% of the terms, look it up in a concordance for yourself, and you'll see it's what Christ did for us. We were sanctified. We were sanctified, set apart in Christ. So it's better to think of sanctification using the language the New Testament does, which is typically transformation. Again, the Romans 12. Although two. there are cases like, uh, what, what's the one about the people, the, tri, uh, the people talk about body, soul, and spirit. May God sanctify you entirely. Exactly. There's a That's case. Right. Okay. Exactly. Uh, Hebrews, now, yeah. see, I'm, I have to figure out what to do because I'm preparing to write an article about this. And usage does determine meaning. So if I write an article refuting false versions of sanctification, which there are so many, I've got like seven of them on my outline already. And then the truth is really simple compared to all the false ones. Do I call, do I call it that because of usage or do I do what David Peterson suggests and use the term transformation, but then you've got to get the entire church to understand a different usage or like Lottie brought up, it's not wrong to use the term sanctification, but if you're using it in a different way than most of the New Testament does, you've got to explain how and why. And there are cases where it does use it. Peter. Yeah, just a quick question. I thought we were taught before that it was justification, then sanctification. Yeah. Yeah, justification is another one of those parts of it. Right. Yeah, he, the imputed righteousness of Christ. We're justified and we are given legally the imputed righteousness of Christ. We're saints by calling. We're holy because God sees the imputed righteousness of Christ as ours. In Adam all die, in Christ all are made alive. Now there's a change in who it applies to. All, when it talks about in Adam, let me say it this way. I'm I'm quoting from Romans, I believe. Or maybe it's 1 Corinthians. I sure need Eric a lot today here. (laughs) He's younger, see, his memory goes quicker. Mine, Mine works, but the the index cards flop over a little more slowly. Uh, I know it says, in Adam all die, in Christ all are made alive. Now, what do you have to do? I want to ask everybody here. What do you have to do 
to be in Adam. Be, be a human being, right? So everybody comes into the world dead in Adam, right? Are the dead ca capable of making themselves undead? No. So God is the one who makes the dead alive. But he uses means. The means would be what Paul ironically calls the foolishness of the message preached. So the word of God goes out. Do we know who's going to become alive in Christ? No, we don't know. We have no idea. We just preach to everybody, which is good. So we got to do. When people come to faith like Saul of Tarsus did in Acts 9, then he's in Christ, right? So what you have to do to be in Adam is nothing. You're already in Adam. To become in Christ requires conversion. Receiving the Holy Spirit. All of these things, the Ordo Salutis, are happening at one time. You're a saint. You repented. You believed in Christ. You received saving grace. All of those things happen at conversion. Do you want to comment? And, and just one point with sanctification, then sometimes being sanctified is a summary of the entire process that Bob just referred to. An example of that would be Acts 20.32, where it says, And now I commend you to God and to the word of grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So, sanctified, so who are those people? Yeah, sanctified would have to do with everyone who is justified and set apart in Christ. So again, yeah. that's the emphasis in the New Testament is what Christ did for us once and for all. We are set apart in Christ, sanctified. Right. Now, we are not denying that having been made a saint is the end of, is, is, needs to be walked out throughout the entire life through what we call means of grace. Means of grace doesn't mean, Rome said what? By the work done. Work, 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 work. If you look at means of grace, it's all about what God did for us and believing in a play. Baptism, what is that telling us? It's reminding us like uh, that we are dead. We died to the old life and we're alive in Christ. What about the Lord's Supper? Remember the Lord's death until he comes. And some people say, well, why would you have to remember something? Everybody knows that Jesus died. Yeah, well, go tell the wilderness wanderers. Why did God have to tell them, remember that Yahweh brought you out of Egypt? Oh, no, we thought it was this golden calf. We have to remember. So we're remembering what God did for us in the Lord's Supper, and then we're believing his promises until he comes. The word of God is the means of grace. Every time we gather, we read, we study, we're growing in the grace and knowledge of God because we're seeing his promises and seeing who God is and seeing that he keeps his promises and that he's going to change us. And even the moral law of God, which is called the law of Christ, which is revealed in the new covenant, is a means of grace because when we start thinking wrong and acting wrong, that word is in our mind and we're thinking, no, wait a second. Thou shalt not covet. Right? Thou shalt not steal. The things that are in that are the moral law of God. We start thinking wrong, wrongly, I should say. The word of God is helping us be sanctified as we believe what he said. And God reminds us and we, you know, cry out to God for help. Yes, in prayer. Yeah, I, I, I'm not... I hope I'm not adding to the thing. I, I, here's how I think of it. You know, when I come to faith in Jesus Christ, I am justified, which means Jesus paid the debt for my sin. I'm justified. And then I'm sanctified. I'm made pure. I'm made holy. I can stand before God. And that happens immediately. But then, uh, and, and this kind of has to do with just 
using words and, and really thinking about the exact meaning of these words. And this is where I like this idea of being transformed by the renewing of our minds through the Holy Spirit. So the transforming is an ongoing process. But justified and sanctified happens when we are saved. Right. Is that correct? I think. Yeah, but occasionally we can use the If we use the term sanctified in some context, it does mean growing. But predominantly, it means positional. So in theology, see, the theology books, good ones, have account for this. We talk about positional and practical, positional sanctification and practical. And so that's, that's correct. It is correct. But the thing, I love Galatians 3.3. 3. Are you so foolish that beginning in a spirit, you're going to be made perfect by the flesh? That's why I could never figure out why, like, for example, when you go to seminary, you have to go take some dumb personality test. So you spend this time studying self to figure out what makes you tick. Rather than just being a sinner saved by grace, studying man doesn't sanctify. Studying God's word does. Yes, Brother Uh, Brian. To bring this around back to David, that's why... When God said David was a man after my own heart, it's because, like you just said, David recognized that sin. Yeah, David sinned, didn't he? But when he was confronted, what, was the, what were the words in the King James, thou art the man? What would I do with a man who did that? He doesn't deserve to live, right? When he was confronted about Bathsheba. What did the prophet say? That's you. And so I totally believe that God will change us and that the change process doesn't happen fully until the resurrection. Yes, Norm. I think in Ephesians 2, 8 through, eight through 10... Where in 8 it says, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and mm-hmm. that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. Mm-hmm. And that's, of course, talking about justification. And not as a result of works, that no one should boast. But we are his workmanship, created in Christ, for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Amen. So where is our power come from to, to change and to... Be transformed and to grow and to walk. It, it comes it's, it's the gift of God and the indwelling Holy Spirit who convicts us and the word of God that objectively tells us what is or isn't God's will and the promises of God that motivate us. I believe that the simple basic things that God has always provided for all Christians will do what God said they will do. That will, God's ordained that we'll walk in good works. And I'll say this, if we're converted and we are the Lord's and we're saints, we're not going to be happy living like the devil. It, It just doesn't work that way. And if we would rather live for the devil, we have reason to think, well, we're not Christians. Maybe I'm not a Christian. Maybe I just thought I was. Okay. I, I wrote it down this way. I just said, uh, sanctified slash justified and sanctification transformation. Yeah, that's, that's a good way to say it. So back to our, we got about two minutes here. Oh, I was going through repentance. And then I brought up that some people say that's not for Christians. But the term repentance, again, like sanctification, does have a range of meaning. Generally, the term means to turn to God. It's, uh, by the way, there's a synonym for repent, and it's called to turn. Epistrepho. Okay? To turn to God. To, from the dominion of Satan to God. Turn from dead works to serve the living God. That's another synonym. But the term repent usually is used turning to Christ through the gospel. But sometimes it's used by Paul for how some Christians are behaving and they need to repent of those particular sins. Is that right? 
And he uses it that way too. So if a Christian in Corinth, which sadly some of them did, thought, well, the Lord's Supper is kind of lame. I think I'll go to the pagan love feast. (laughs) It's a lot more exciting, which was basically a drunken, whatever, uh, debauchery. What did Paul say to them? You You can't do that. You've got to decide whether it's the Lord or whatever god or goddess the pagans are serving. You can't serve both. And they need to repent. So it does apply to Christians. But most of the time it's used for turning to God. I'll get these. I can make copies of those right now. Here. Eric, could you bring those over to Christy? You can either, you got a choice, donuts or repentance. <laughs> no, I didn't come out right. <laughs> yeah. He said, what kind of donuts? I'm thinking about it. <laughs> no, you can have both. But the, the verses will be printed out so you can study them. Let's close in prayer. Dear Lord, thank you for the richness of your word. Thank you for the saints who love to hear and discuss our mutual salvation and as we try to help one another to serve you honorably. And we do need grace for that. We thank you, Lord, for all you've done and for those who um, just love to hear the word of God and be part of the fellowship of the saints. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.